I'm going to read the first three verses of 1 Chronicles 11, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into it together. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word by, of the Lord by Samuel. Father, we pray that you would help us to not get bogged down by so many names, wondering who all these people are. But Lord, help us to receive the intent of the author, because we believe your Holy Spirit wants to speak to us and show us how these things have to do with us. Lord, we pray that you administer to us, and that Lord, you would use this time in your word to teach us and equip us to minister to one another. Please, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. So it's really important that we don't forget that 1 and 2 Chronicles, as I said before, one book in the Hebrew Bible, the final book in the Hebrew Bible, and are, in a sense, a summation of all that's happened in Israel's history. Israel being God's chosen people, the, the author, and we don't know for sure who the author is, but the author is, is taking the history of, of Israel and he's basically writing sermons about it. He, he's writing these spiritual lessons from Israel's history. And what's great about this is that we don't have to sort of guess what the spiritual lessons are for us. All we really need to do is look at what he was trying to get God's people to understand, and then we can see exactly what God wants us to understand. And so really, in chapters 11 and 12 go together, hence we're teaching them together. They go together because what the author wants the, the readers to see is that, that all of Israel finally united under King David. He wanted them to, to, to be reminded that this is when they had unity. This is when things were, or as they were meant to be, was when they were under God's chosen king. Now this is important for us to think about because the, the, the Bible says specifically, the New Testament says specifically that the Old Testament is meant to teach us lessons. Listen to this. Romans 15.4 says, Such things were written in Scripture long ago to teach us, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we patiently, or we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So we live right now in a point of history between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of, of Jesus where we now experience how great it is to be under his kingship, to be under Jesus who's God's chosen king. So if we have faith in Jesus, we know it's good to be under his authority. But we also live in a world that's not yet completely under his authority. And we're longing for that day when he comes back, and it's under his authority. So we're in a place where we need to wait patiently. Where we need to say, okay, God, we, we, we believe you, we trust you, Lord, that you have us, that what you've done for us is enough through your death and resurrection. We long for the day that you come back and make all things right. 
But until that day, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's hard for us to wait. Well, the original audience that the chronicler is writing to were in the similar boat. You see, this is the, when, when, when they're reading this, they're in a place where David is long gone. The temple has been built, the, the Israel has been at its peak, and then divided, gone into captivity, and they're now just kind of barely coming back to the promised land and beginning to rebuild Jerusalem. And so they're in a place where they know Israel's history, they know the history of God's people, but they're discouraged because they see their present day circumstances, and they go, you know, this isn't that great. It's difficult to trust that God's actually going to bring something great and glorious out of this. And so the author wants to remind them of, well, listen, remember where the promises come from. Remember what God's done in the past. And this is why it's important. Because what God has done in the past, he, re he repeats in the present. God has a way of the way he relates to his people is always the way he relates to his people. Those people that God makes covenant with, he makes covenant with so that we can trust him and be in relationship with him. And so really what the author is doing in these two chapters is, he's wanting them to say, remember how Israel was united and why Israel was united under David, under, the, under his authority, under his kingship. And he points to three basic evidences that we're going to look at today. The first basic evidence is this. He points to the city that was established by David. Look at verse 4. We're going to come back to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 11 at the very end. But right now, look at verse 4. It says, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jabus, where the Jebusites were and the, the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jabus said to David, You shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Two verses, notice, two verses, four different names for the same city on purpose. Now, when we think about Jerusalem, Jerusalem is, 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 is pinnacle in all of Scripture. It's, the, it's a high point. And, and what you had happen with God's people before this time is that the center of where God's people um, sort of uh, met or, the, or, or, or sought God was, had been before historically, Hebron. We'll see about Hebron in a bit. But when David became king, David took over the city and made that the, 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 the center point, Jerusalem. That's where the temple ends up getting built, is Jerusalem. And now what we know about the Jerusalem and its names is that its names all speak about something about God's presence. The, the name Jerusalem literally means the flow of peace or the flow of shalom. And so the idea of Jerusalem is it's the peace that comes from God's presence. The fact that things are as they ought to be when Jesus or God is in the center. He's right where he's supposed to be. The name Jabus, of course, the Jebusites took their name after the city Jabus, speaks of the fact that, that this was once a pagan city. Just like we were all, even as believers, we were once pagans. We resisted the presence of God. We didn't want him in our life. They didn't want God in their city. Zion is, is, a, is a, a name that usually speaks of the permanence of God's presence. So if you read, uh, like in the book of Hebrews, it refers to a heavenly Jerusalem that it also calls Zion, or the fact that it's a permanent place of God's dwelling. The city of David speaks of the authority of God's presence. David was God's chosen king, the representative of his authority among his people. 
Now, now this is important because the, the, in saying these things or in bringing up this, this to his readers, the authors want him to say, don't forget how significant the city is. The city that you see right now laying in, in ruin, the city you see now, right now needing desperately to be rebuilt, it's still God's chosen city. And David established it. Now he goes on in verse 6. He says, Now David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zed, Zed whatever his name is, uh, went out first, and he became chief. Then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it from the Milo uh, to the, the surrounding areas. Je, uh, Joab repaired the rest of the city. And so David went on and came, became great. And, and it says, and the Lord of hosts with, was with him. Some of your versions said, and David went on and became great because, and that's part more accurate, because the Lord of hosts was with him. Now, the truth is, we get some story here about the background story that the, the readers would have known really well, which is that when David conquers the city, Joab, of course, uh, is, is the guy who takes the initiative to go and do that work. And then together they rebuild the city. And Jerusalem also was a, in a very strategic place. It was up, high up, very easy to defend uh, against uh, attackers and stuff. But they talk about this great success, but the author wants to make it really clear. David was successful because, listen, God was with him. Sure, David's leadership made it a secure and centralized capital, but David's success was completely dependent upon God's blessing. This is so important for us to hear, isn't it? Just like it was so important for them to hear. We see how much growing we need still as individuals and as a group. And we think, Lord, I, 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 I want to see more change. We want to see God do more things. We want to see more people come to faith. We want to walk more as people of faith. And we're waiting for you to do this. And God says, listen, what you're waiting for is not a new leader. What you're waiting for is not a new strategy. What you're waiting for is me. Listen to this. God encourages his people from Isaiah 41.10. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, God never wants us to trust in Jerusalem. He wants us to trust in him. But the, the, the author really wants his, his readers to see, look, here's the evidence that God united us. Don't forget, it was David. Uh, that was the city that he established was Jerusalem. Now, drop down to verse 10. From verse 10 of chapter 11 all the way through verse 22 of chapter 12, the author's going to list tons of names. He's going to list all these men that kind of came around David and helped fight with him, or, help, or not fight with him, helped fight for him. They gathered around him. These were the faithful. And the author is definitely wanting to, to show the distinction between those who used to serve with Saul and realize Saul is a bad deal, he's not the good king, and those who now serve with David and how they've been faithful now to serve with David. And you wouldn't necessarily know this unless, uh, uh, unless you looked up these different cities and areas that were mentioned, but he actually kind of does this in a cycle. He kind of starts in one area of, of Israel and then he kind of names places 
so on and so forth, to kind of come back full circle of all Israel geographically came under him. And I almost did a map with that for you map geeks, so I apologize I didn't get that done. But that's kind of what he was doing. But also what he's wanting to show here is, is he's wanting to show the difference between Saul's unfaithfulness and the faithfulness of David and those men who came to him. He's wanting to show here's the quality of men that gathered around David and believed that David was indeed God's chosen king. So, verses 10 and 11. Let's look at first, verses 10 to 19. We're going to look first at those, the, the faithful were those who learned to become overcomers. Verse 10. Now these were the heads of the mighty men who David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Yashobim the son of Hakmonite, chief of the captains. He lifted up his spear against 300 killed by, and killed by him at one time. So the first guy he mentions, he's going to mention in verses 10 19, these three mighty men. The first guy he mentions is uh, Yashabim. And Yashabim persevered in battle. I mean, killing, you know, having 300 kills of your lifetime is impressive for a warrior. Forget about the moralism about this. He's just, it's impressive as a warrior, okay? But having, killing 300 guys in one day, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a fight before, but after about three minutes, you're exhausted. It's, it's horribly difficult. Don't believe the movies where these guys are like, whoa, for like 15 minutes. It just doesn't happen that way. And in a real fight, even boxers, man, these guys have to be in such fit condition, and they can only fight for three-minute rounds. You know why? It's exhausting. This guy persevered all day until he wiped out 300 of God's enemies. Next he talks about verse 12, Eleazar. He says, after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Great name for a dad. <laughs> Who was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at, at Pashadim. Now here the Philistines were gathered together and there was a piece of, uh, of ground full of barley. Samuel tells us it was full of lentils. It could have been both. So the people fled from the Philistines... But they stationed themselves in the middle of that field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. So Eleazar is described in Chronicles as fighting side by side for David to guard a field of beans, basically. He's being faithful. This is how you learn to be an overcomer. You fight not on your own, but by the king's side. Interesting, uh, Samuel tells us that when Eliezer is fighting, his sword was so cleaved to his hand that they, he had to, sort of, they had to peel his fingers off at the end of the day. Again, I don't know if you've done any kind of manual labor where you've been shoveling all day long and your hands are so sore you have to uh, pry them off. The, this is what these guys were like when they were fighting. Now, in verses 19, 15 and 19, we have this amazing story. Let me just read it, then we'll make a comment on it. It says, Now the three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock of David into the cave of Adullam. And the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And so the three, that is these two that were mentioned in another guy, the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. 
Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it for me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives they, they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. So here's what's happening, if you can picture this. David, who's from Bethlehem, probably having a bit of nostalgia, is wishing he could drink from this really sweet well that was in the city, but God's enemies were occupying that city. And so he kind of, you can see, maybe hear him in his frustration, oh man, I wish I could just drink from the well again. Longing to have the, the, that city freed from the, from the enemy. So what happens? His three mighty men, these guys, you know what they do? They say, let's do it. And they sneak through the enemy lines. They get him some water. They sneak back. And they go, here it is, David. You can hear him panting. Here's the water. And so what does David do? David goes, I can't drink that. And he pours it out. Now, this sounds like, what, David? Don't be a jerk. These guys worked hard for this. But this is what David's doing. Listen, David's not being lax about what they've done. It's just the opposite. David's saying, this is more important. This is, this is something more valuable than just quenching my thirst or satisfying my nostalgia. This is about worship. This water should be poured out as worship unto God. Now, now listen to this. Again, we're talking about these are these men who have learned to be overcomers. Here's how they learned to be overcomers. The three responded to the king's desire. They, they heard the king's heart. They go, we want to do that. We want to do that. So often we're saying, God, what's your plan for my life? And the emphasis is on my life. Instead of saying, God, what do you want? What do you desire? I want to pursue what you desire. What's your longing? Now here's the interesting thing. You might be wondering at this point when I say, learning to be overcomers. You know, these guys sound like pretty, pretty mighty guys, pretty amazing guys. They're called the mighty men of David, after all. How are they learning? Listen, here, here's, here's the background we get to these men. In fact, this fits a lot of the men in these chapters. Listen to this. 1 Samuel chapter 22. David, therefore, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. This is the cave that he was at when he said what he said, Okay. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him, notice, and everyone who was, <clears throat> excuse me, who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him until so he became captain over them. In other words, the people who became David's mighty men didn't start off going, David, we're mercenaries. How can we help? <laughs> These weren't like, you know, multiplicity of Rambos coming in. These were men, listen, these were men who were in distress. So oh, I'm stressing out, my life's so hard. They were in debt. I'm going to pay back these people who need their money. And they were discontent. I'm just not happy with the way my nation is. Sound familiar? Anybody distressed or discontented or in debt? The reality is, though, when they saw that David was God's chosen king and they came to David, what happened? They became overcomers. We're going to talk more about the whole idea of overcomers at the end of this section because I really think all the people in this qualify as overcomers. But these are the faithful who gathered to, to around David. They're those who learned to be overcomers. Then verses 20 to 25, they're also those who faced enemies greater than themselves. Look at verse 20. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. 
And he had lifted up his, uh, his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among the three. <clears throat> of the three, he was more honored than the other two men. Uh, therefore, he became captain. However, he, wasn't as, he didn't attain to the first three. So he's a good guy, but not as good as these first three mighty men. But here's the guy I want to look at. Um, Benaniah. Listen to this guy. Benaniah was the son of Jehoiadan, the son of a valiant man of Keb, Keb, Kabzeel, sorry, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a, of a pit on a snowy day. Why? We don't know. And he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. That's seven and a half feet, in case you're wondering. In the Egyptian's hand, there was like a spear, like a weaver's beam. He went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of his, the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaniah, the son of Jehoiadah, did, and won a name among the mighty men. Indeed, he was more honorable than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. But David appointed him over his guard, over his bodyguards, probably. Now, here's what's interesting. These guys were in a situation, or Ben and I was in a situation where first he faces not one lion-like hero, but two. Faces down two guys at the same time. He's outnumbered, but he perseveres. Then he, then he, then he faces what? A lion. Probably, you know, the lions, of course, are, are vicious, and if they're really hungry, man, you, you want to run away. But what happens is he chases the ideas. He chases the lion away from other people. When the lion goes into this pit, falls in a pit, he goes, I'm not leaving that lion there. I'm going to dive in that pit. Finish the deal. That's pretty crazy. On a snowy day, no less. A bit slippery and stuff. <laughs> then, he, then he fights this dude that's seven and a half feet. Now, I, I've never backed down to a fight, but I think I'd run away from a guy who was seven and a half feet tall. But this guy didn't do it. Why did he do it? Why, why would he face enemies greater than themselves? Because he, he was assured that he was serving God's chosen king. Verse 26, these faithful men. They're also those whose works were forgotten by men. Now, from verses 26 all the way down to verse 47, we have more than 47 names. And here's what we know. Nobody's sure what these guys did. <laughs> these are those whose works were forgotten by men. Listen, you might be one of those. People don't see what I try to do for the Lord. What's the point? The point is God sees. In fact, interesting... Do you notice who's, do you notice any that recognize any of the names? Look at verse 41. Do you recognize that first name? Uriah the Hittite. Do you remember who he was? Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. He's listed here. Who, who basically, when he was off fighting in battles where David was supposed to be, David's on his roof enjoying the night air. He sees Uriah's wife bathing. She's a hottie. And so he has her come over and he sleeps with her. She falls pregnant, and to cover it up, he has Uriah killed. Now, none of this is mentioned here. It's mentioned in Samuel. It's not mentioned here. Remember, the reason it's not mentioned here, we, we talked about this, in Chronicles is because the point of Chronicles is not to bring up all the dirt. The point of Chronicles is to encourage that they can trust God's chosen king. But I think it's interesting that he keeps his name in this list. It's interesting to me because, <coughs> excuse me, nobody wants Uriah's testimony. Nobody wants to be Uriah. Who wants to be Uriah? You know, going to heaven, you, you, you see, you stand before God, 
Hey, Uriah, tell us your story. How was God great in life? Well, I served the king faithfully, and then he slept with my wife and had me killed. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Nobody wants that story. But here's the thing. Do you think Uriah's reward was any less because of that? No, I'd say it was probably greater. How faithful is our God? You see, we forget what people do. If the Lord tarries, I guarantee you, in about 30 years, no one's going to care who John Brown is. The name itself, come on, let's go. John Brown is like so common. No one's going to care. But God will know everything that he's ever had me do. Listen to this. The author of Hebrews wanting to encourage those who are, who are kind of wanting to give up and not mature anymore. And to encourage them, here's what he says. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. <clears throat> hey, if I haven't thanked you for your service at Servants Church, forgive me. But no, God hasn't forgotten. If I haven't supported you in your service to God's kingdom, forgive me. But no, God hasn't forgotten. The quality of people that gather around God's chosen king are those who, who most of the time, their works are forgotten by men. Now, chapter 12, verse 1. Now he's going to talk about men. These are men who, who committed before the king fully reigned. Remember, we're in that place. We're under the king Jesus, but he hasn't come back yet. These guys were in a similar boat. Verse 1, chapter 12. Now these men, <clears throat> sorry, these were the men who came to David at Ziglag uh, while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men, helpers in war. Now, we're going to skip the rest of that for now, but know this, okay? It's important that we recognize where these guys are at. Okay, the men that are gathering around him, that he's going to say, uh, backed him up, became his mighty men. These men came to him before David was actually king. So he had been pro prophesied that he would be king. Samuel the prophet said he was king. He had been used as they expected the king to be used. All the signs were there. They recognized him as king even before he fully reigned. Think there's a lesson there for us? Now, if you drop down to verse 8, in verse 8, he then talks about another group. And these are groups that I would call, these are those, these faithful, are those who took risks and they used their, the skills that they had. These are the faithful men who gathered around David. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness. <clears throat> Mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as gazelles on the mountain. He then names them in the order that they come in. And then look at verse 15. These are the ones who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it, was, when it had overflowed its banks and they put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and the west. Now the picture in verse 15 is these Gadites, and he of course names who they are, these Gadites, that they so want to come under David, they so want to come under God's chosen king, that they actually cross the river Jordan at the most dangerous time. Crossing a freezing river when it flows above your head is not a smart thing to do. It's not. But they're so determined they do this. And they're so emboldened by crossing the river. What do they do? On the way to David, they're just thrashing God's enemies left and right all the way there. 
They were taking great risk because they wanted to be with God's chosen king. But also notice in verse 8, it, it describes them as those who could handle shield and spear. If you can handle shield and spear, you're ready for face-to-face -face combat, close combat. Now, compare this to verse 2 of chapter 12, talking about the men who gathered at Ziglag. These guys were armed with bows, <coughs> excuse me, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left hand in hurling stones, that would be like a slingshot, and shooting arrows with their bows. So they're ambidextrous. They can go, they can go, they can go, or they can go, now, those weapons were for long-distance combat. Now, this is important because the guys are at long, long distance. They had to be courageous, but that had to be fast because you shot and then you ran away to a new place. You weren't, like, kind of confronting. You were strategic. The guys here at close combat, they were the big brutish guys. Not too fast, but they were tough, and they were right there, face-to-face. -face. Which was better? Both. Both. The thing is, this is what happens. We sometimes wish we had skill sets like so-and-so or such-and-such. Instead of just being willing to say, God, here's what I have. What do you want me to do with it? See, when we gather around our chosen king, this is where we need to be. Faithfulness says, God, I'm willing to take risks for you and use whatever gifts you give me for your glory. Now, look at verse 16. Who are these faithful men gathered to David? They were those who spoke the truth by the Spirit's power. Look at verse 16. Then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to David at the stronghold. And David went out to meet them, and he answered, and he said to them, If you have come peaceably to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if you betray me to my enemies, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. I love this because it's, it's understandable why David would be a bit hesitant. But really what he's doing here is he's offering them peace. He's saying, listen, hey, I'm, I want to be on your side. I'm not trying to wipe you out, even though I'm the warrior king. I don't want to wipe you guys out. I'm happy for you to be on my side if that's what you want. If you don't want, I'm trusting God to bring justice. He didn't say, pull out a sword and say, who are you? He just said, listen, man, if you're for me, let's be united together. Let's do God's work. If you're not for me, God's going to work it out. I love that attitude. But also, when he asked him this, look what happens in verse 18. <clears throat> he asked him this, and so what happens? <clears throat> it says, then the spirit came upon Amaziah, chief of the captains, and he said, we are yours, O David. We are on your side, <clears throat> O son of Jesse. Peace Peace to you and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. And so David received them and made them captains of the troop. In a real sense, when the Spirit comes upon this guy and he, he prophesies, he says this, he's basically saying, anybody who helps you is on God's side because God helps you. He's drawn the line in the sand. Man, if you want to be with God, be with God's chosen king. That's what he's doing. Now, I love this because... They did this, he did this by the Spirit's power. Now, talking about how the Holy Spirit works is a whole series of Bible studies themselves. That just happened to be on our website if you want to check it out. <laughs> but it's important for us to recognize that the Old Testament believers, unless they were a prophet or a priest or a king, did not have what we have as New Testament believers in Jesus. 
they only experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon them for a moment or for a period of time. Even prophet, priests, and kings could lose the Holy Spirit. But Jesus said clearly, listen, he said he would send the Spirit and he would abide with us forever. And here's what's great about that. Because the Spirit dwells in us as believers, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we say, man, I can't live for my sin anymore, I need to turn and live for God, we say, I want to live for God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose again to prove it. When that happens with us, God's Spirit comes to live inside of us permanently. And here's what this means. Because he's with us, we can believe that he's working in us to change us, but also he will still come upon us so we can say the right thing at the right time to the right person. It's called prophecy. God wants to use it. I'll tell you what, man. Not every person is going to prophesy, but the Bible tells us every person should desire to. Do you know that? It says this in 1 Corinthians 14.1. You can look it up later. Tell me if I'm wrong. It says we should pursue love. We should desire the, the work of the Holy Spirit. We should pursue love and especially that we would prophesy. Now, these guys, these are those who are gathered together. Last description of the men who were faithfully gathered together to God's chosen king. Verses 19 and 22. Those who were once reluctant to defect. I love this little bit. Verse 19 says, And so some from Manasseh defected to David when he was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul. But they did not help them, for the Lord of the Philistines sent him away by agreement, saying, May he may defect to his master Saul and endanger our heads. And so when he went to Ziglag, those of Manasseh who, def who defected to him were, he lists those men, in verse 21, and they helped David against the band of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valors, they were captains in the armies, and from, uh, for at that time they came to David day by day to help him, until it was a great army, like the army of God. Now, he talks about these guys from Manasseh that would eventually defect to David, but he, he seems to be saying there was a, an initial hesitancy because, well, David had to hide from Saul with God's enemies, the Philistines. So when the Philistines said, okay, let's go attack Saul, if you, if you know the story, David had to act like he was crazy, so they would back off and let him go, okay? Because David didn't want to fight against Saul because Saul was God's king as well, and he didn't want to go against what God had, had ordered, but, but here's what's interesting. Once God sorts that situation out for David, where David doesn't go fight against Saul, you know what happens? These guys say, no, we're going to follow this guy. And, and you have to kind of admire this, don't you? You have to kind of, uh, you know, admire the fact these guys were going, you know, it doesn't seem right that you'd fight against God's first chosen king, even if you are God's chosen king. And so they, were not, they weren't just kind of quick to go, whatever David says is fine. They were wanting to think through the issue. Now, this is, this is important for me because I tend to be, naturally speaking, I tend to be a cynic. Do you know what a cynic is? It's someone who's just not quick to believe stuff. I'm just not quick to believe stuff. So if I give you that weird look like you think I don't believe what you're saying, don't take it personally. It's not you. It's me. I'm a cynic. I don't tend to kind of trust things or people or what people say. I need to find out for myself. Now, that's gotten me in a lot of trouble. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm slower to believe in what God says than I need to be. But I'll tell you what, I'm so amazed at God's mercy. That God works it out so I can see that I can trust him. So that even when I was cynical before, I can be faithful now. 
This is, this is, again, what God does. He takes people and he teaches them to trust him. All these men we've talked about, in, in chapter 11, verse 10, through all the way here to the end, uh, or to chapter 12, verse 22, all of these men were overcomers. They learned to trust Jesus. The last book of the, the New Testament is the book of Revelation. In the beginning part, or in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches that were letters that the resurrected Jesus, the glorified Jesus, dictated to John the Apostle. And to every church in those seven letters, he gives this exhortation at the end of the church. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give, and he talks about a specific reward for that specific church. To him who overcomes. Being an overcomer is, is, is paramount with being a believer. He teaches us to overcome. I, I want to be clear about something. I'm not, I'm not teaching some like this victorious Christianity. We never struggle. Everything is always wonderful. That's just disingenuous. It's not true. But I'm also not teaching, like, oh, we're Christians, we're just as bad as everybody else, we're sinners, we're hopeless, we're horrible. That's not true either. Because we have God's Spirit dwelling in us, because we have the promises of Jesus Messiah, God's permanent chosen King, we can learn to be overcomers. We're going to struggle. We're going to lose battles. But the war's already won. And so we learn to be overcomers. In fact, listen to this. John writes this, the Apostle John writes this in 1 John 5, 4. He says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Let me be clear here. Faith here is not a, an, uh, this attitude of, I am going to win, I am going to win, I am going to win. That's not the faith the scripture is talking about. It's this faith. Listen to this. Jesus said this. John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that you, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, now here's the thing we have to get through our heads, guys. As we gather to, our, to God's chosen king, Jesus... We have to get through our heads, listen, that God is calling us, definitely, God is calling us to be those who learn to be overcomers, who, who, who face enemies greater than ourselves, who, whose works are often forgotten by men, who, who, commit, who commit to our king even before we see him fully reigning, uh, who take risks and use the skills that we have, who speak by the Spirit's power, who were once reluctant to defect, but now we're going off uh, with him. We are called to be that, listen, we're called to be that through faith in him. Our focus is never going to be, it never should be, on our ability to overcome, but on our King who has overcome. Amen? Now, we get to the final evidence that the author brings forth. The first one, of course, being here's the city that David built. Here's the men that, or the faithful that David, David gathered. And the last one is this. Here's the authority that was exemplified by David. Look at verse 23 of chapter 12. 
Now these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him. Now remember we started in chapter 1 or chapter 11 verse 1 in Hebron. It ends the section again in Hebron. He's going full circle. He says, according to the word of the Lord of the sons of Judah, and then he goes on to describe them. And I want you if, you, if you read through this, maybe you can do this for homework. You go through and see when he mentions the sons of. You'll notice verse 24, the sons of Judah. Verse 25, the sons of Simeon. Verse 26, the sons of Levi. Verse 29, the sons of Benjamin. Verse 30, the sons of Ephraim. Verse 31, half-tribe of Manasseh. Verse 32, the sons of uh, Issachar. Verse 33, of Zebulun. Verse 34, of Naphtali. Verse 35, of the Danites. Verse 37 of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. If you look at that, you know what he's dealing with? The 12 tribes of Israel. And the point is very simple. It's very clear. Listen, his authority was universal in scope. That is, quality men from every single tribe gathered around God's chosen king. We have a New Testament picture of this. Listen. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. This is, this, is, this is when the Lord's on his, Jesus is on his throne. It says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, they're singing to the Lamb, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And your blood, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from, notice, every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is not the savior for white people. He's the savior for all people. Amen. White people just might need a bit more than everyone else. The truth is, listen, the truth is we all need Jesus. He is God's chosen king over all of us. This is the picture that Chronicles encourages us towards. His authority, David's authority was universal in scope in the same way Jesus' authority, or, or pointing to Jesus' authority that was completely universal in scope. Look at verses 38 to, four, to 40. It says, And these men of war who keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. All the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. Unity. And they were there with David three days. What are they doing? Eating and drinking. Two of my favorite things. For they were brethren, for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them, for as far, as, for far away as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, were bringing food on donkeys and camels, on mules and oxens, provisions of flour, cakes of figs, cakes of raisins, wine, oil, and oxen and sheep abundantly. And what was there? There was joy in Israel. What is this? A massive party. <laughs> they gather together under David, and what do they experience? Extravagance in their celebration. You know, this reminds me of, it reminds me of when there is the woman who came into a, someone's home when Jesus was eating, and took the alabaster flask and broke it and poured it on his feet and began to wipe his feet with her hair. And as she does this, as an act of worship to Jesus, as she does this, his own disciples say, Judas and the others, they all say, 
what is the deal with this waste? That could have been sold for almost a year's wages, and we could have fed the poor. That's wasteful. That's what they said when this one was worshiping Jesus so extravagantly. And here's what Jesus said. He said, Assuredly I say to you, this is Matthew 26, 13, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Listen. I'm not telling you guys to, you know, come in here on a Sunday morning and then rather than, you know, put money in the offering box, just burn it and as unto the Lord. That would be waste. That would be stupid. Don't do that. <laughs> but I am telling you to do this. Be extravagant in your worship. Think, meditate, pray until you find a joy that your sins are completely forgiven, that every promise made to us in Christ is yes and amen. Don't settle for a ticking of the boxes. Don't settle. Don't settle for, well, I'm willing myself forward. We do need to will ourselves forward. Don't get me wrong. But don't settle for that. You see, when these guys recognize that, look, we don't have a failure king anymore. We have God's chosen king in David. What do they do? They partied for three days. We have a hard time getting through a 30-minute worship set. People have said to me, they've said to me, we, we really do love servants. We just, you know, we just like to come after the music. It's not that... And it's not because they have a problem with the songs or the, the band, or bands, we have more than one. They're, they're good. They, they, it wasn't that. It's just like, well, you know, is that really important? Of course it is. Amen. How is your heart going to knit to God if you don't ever take time to celebrate him? Have you ever, if you who are married or in a serious relationship, have you ever said to your significant other, I love you, and not really felt it all? Were you lying? No, you were saying what you knew to be true, what you wanted to feel to be true. But if you settled there, I bet your relationship isn't so great. If you didn't press on and invest so that you would feel the passion in those words, I love you, you're missing out on what that relationship is supposed to be. How much more with a partner, with a spouse, Jesus, who is our husband, who's perfect, who even in our worst failures, there's reason to rejoice in him. You see, when we recognize Jesus, you are king of kings and lord of lords. You are God's chosen king. You are in all authority. And we say, Lord, we want to follow after you. When we do that, we can find a reason to celebrate. Even when things aren't so great. Because he's still on the throne. Amen? Lastly, quickly, look at the first part of chapter 11. The first three verses. So, we're talking about this... Um, we're talking about this authority that was exemplified by David. Authority that, of course, points forward to the overall authority that Jesus, as God's chosen king, has. And, and this is where we really want to understand that that authority that David had was prophetic in its structure. Uh, look at quickly. Look at what it says in... in Verse 1 of chapter 11. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, you are bone, you are, I'm sorry, we are your bone and your flesh. That's what they say. In other words, they recognize David as one with them. 
You know, one of the things the Bible, the New Testament emphasizes is that we recognize the humanity of Jesus. Do you realize if Jesus wasn't fully man, we couldn't be saved? We needed a representative that was like us. Jesus was fully man. But also, if he wasn't fully God, we couldn't be saved. Because we needed a sacrifice that would satisfy God's perfect eternal justice. See, they're recognizing the oneness that they have. Do we recognize Jesus came as a man? We serve a king that knows exactly what it's like to be tempted in every way that we are, yet never failed. The Israelites couldn't say that about David. And then in verse 2, what does it say? Also, in times past, they said, Even when Saul was king, you were the one that led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall, be shepherd, you shall shepherd my people Israel, you and be ruler over my people Israel. As referring to when David anointed, uh, or I'm sorry, when Samuel anointed David as a child. But they're also referring to the fact that it was David who killed Goliath. When none of the other leaders of Israel, including Saul, would go fight Goliath because he was seven and a half feet tall. David, as a, as a young lad, said, I'll do it. Not because he was so, because he was cocky and thought, I can do this. He thought, hey, this is, this, we're God's people. God's the one who's going to fight. God's the one who's going to bring the victory, not me. It's God. And here's what's great. They're acknowledging God's plan for David. They're saying, you've done these great things, and those great things were God's plan for you to rescue us. Do you recognize Jesus' sinless life because he did he lived a life that was perfect even at the cross guys listen his enemies couldn't accuse him of anything do you know why Jesus was crucified for claiming to be God which is blasphemy from a Jewish perspective and, a, and, a, and from a Jewish perspective an Old Testament perspective it is a, a penalty or a crime worthy of death that's the only, only they could say only crime they could accuse him of not lying not, not adultery, not thievery, just blasphemy because you claim yourself to be God. And it would be blasphemy unless he is God. And he is. No one could accuse him of anything. He lived a, a sinless life. Do you believe he did that for you? Do you believe that he did what he said he did on the cross? The last words, second to last phrase, the second to last phrase he spoke on the cross was what? It is finished. Painful. Do you believe the testimony of those who saw him after he, risen from the, he was risen from the dead several times, that Jesus rose from the dead, the dead to guarantee your justification, that you could be innocent before God? These guys saw what God had done for them through David. Do we see what God has done for us through the son of David, Jesus? Verse 3, Therefore, all Israel came to the king at Hebron and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So David makes a covenant and what do they do? They receive the covenant. Has Jesus offered us a covenant? Yes. Yep. He said this is the covenant he said to his disciples in my blood. He says here's a contract a promise of love based on my sacrifice. Here's where unity begins and ends around God's chosen king. See, here's what the scripture says, and I'll close with this, Ephesians chapter 4. 
we're exalted as individual believers to, we're exhorted as individual believers to walk worthy of the calling with which we are called. That's the call to follow Jesus. Not a call to ministry, the call to follow Jesus. That's your call. If you think, I, I want to believe in Jesus, I want to walk with Jesus, the call he has for you is to come follow me. He says, walk worthy of that calling with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Why? Because we all get it wrong. Notice he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He didn't say create the unity of the Spirit. He says keep it. The unity of the Spirit is this. It's the fact that Anyone who says, I want to follow Jesus, I believe he's God's chosen king, I believe he died for my sin, the person who's come to believe that has been born of the Spirit. And what we keep is Jesus central. The way we stay unified as God's people within our church, servant church, and with all other churches is to keep our unity based on who Christ is and what he's done. We can disagree on worship styles. We can disagree on church structure. We can disagree on certain secondary issues of interpreting scripture. We cannot disagree on Jesus. Do you know why the world cannot produce unity? Because unity only happens when we're under the right king and we keep picking the wrong ones but when we as Jesus followers recognize him as God and king then we together can display a unity that shows his worthiness his trustworthiness amen and father we pray that you would help us to do this and Lord, we pray for anyone here who's not yet a follower of Jesus father would you would you convince them by your Holy Spirit that you are who you said you are, that Jesus is who he said he is, that they can trust his death and resurrection, that they can follow him, he's worthy. And for those of us, Lord, who have already put our faith in you, Lord, forgive us. We're so slow to follow you, so slow to trust. Lord, you're worthy of our unflinching faith, and we thank you, God, <laughs> that you love us even when we flinch, that you commit to us even though we flinch. Keep us, we pray. Help us to keep walking with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.